0: Ulysses S. Grant was originally named Hiram Ulysses Grant. Actually, he went unnamed for several weeks. The lore has it that his mother wanted to name him after Albert Gallatin, who was Thomas Jefferson's treasury secretary. Solid choice. His father liked Hiram, which to him was a strong biblical name. Then out of left field comes Ulysses' step-grandmother, who was always compelled by the Homeric hero, Ulysses. I knew him growing up as Odysseus. Anyways, this young baby crawls away from these events as Hiram Ulysses Grant. As young Grant and his childhood friends learn to read, they figure out that his initials spell H.U.G which is a very not cool word for your initials to spell in southwestern Ohio in the 1820s. To combat this and gain cool points, Ulysses decides that he's actually in camp step-grandma and begins to favor Ulysses as the name by which he identifies. When he came to be college age, his dad got a politician friend to recommend Ulysses for an appointment at West Point. That was pretty much how the college application process for that institution went back then. Each state had a set amount of appointments they could confer, so if you were friends with a senator, you could get him to appoint your son. Ulysses' dad gets his old friend Ohio Senator Thomas L. Hamer to recommend Ulysses, but when Hamer goes to write the appointment, he can't remember the kid's full name. He figures it's Ulysses S. Grant, maybe because Grant's mom's maiden name was Simpson. Anyways, Grant enrolls at West Point as Ulysses S. Grant. This was very good material for nicknames. His friends called him Uncle Sam Grant, or U.S. Grant, like after United States, or for short, just Sam. So that's how Hug Boy becomes Ulysses S. Grant. Welcome back to another edition of Ulysses Under Fire. My name is Henry Kronk. So in this episode, I'm going to try to paint the historical backdrop of Ulysses Grant's early life. I'm going to do that with some really broad strokes at some times. And some of those strokes are the subject of arguments between historians. Some of those strokes have been very politicized. Oh boy. So, Ulysses was born on April 27, 1822, delivered by an abolitionist doctor named John Rogers. The Grants lived in Point Pleasant, Ohio, a town that sits on the bank of the Ohio River, about 35 miles upriver from Cincinnati, and it looks across to Kentucky. Uh, Biographer Ron Chernow called it a, quote, nondescript cluster of makeshift cabins, end quote. Grant's mom was Hannah Simpson Grant. She is a super quiet, super reserved, and super Methodist woman. She was so unforthcoming, uh, especially later in life when her son was famous and reporters were banging down her door to get a story, that we know very little about her. People who knew her say she rarely joked and never laughed. But at the same time, Hannah Simpson Grant wasn't a judgmental wasp. She maintained a constant, level-headed, and sweet demeanor. She was the type of person to come to someone's rescue when everyone else was piling on. Ulysses says that he never saw his mother cry. She totally withheld her emotions from her family and everyone else. That includes praise and expressions of love. So while Ulysses had a strong emotional connection with his mother, he didn't exactly have strong emotional communication with her. Things in this household weren't exactly warm and fuzzy. Now let's turn to Jesse Root Grant, Ulysses' father. This guy was an outrageous, bombastic blowhard. He was also a successful self-made westerner. Through the Grant mail line, Ulysses and Jesse Root were descended from two very early Puritan settlers, Matthew Grant and Priscilla Grant. They came over from Dorset County, England in 1630. Grant's fought in the French and Indian War, and Jesse Root's father, Noah Grant, fought in the Revolutionary War, beginning at the Battle of Bunker Hill. Now, in his memoirs, Ulysses says Noah fought the entire Revolutionary War and generally paints him in a positive light. But historians have not been able to substantiate these claims. It looks like Noah fought for a period at the outbreak of the conflict, but then he left the army, fathered two children with a woman who died, then moved near Pittsburgh in western uh, Pennsylvania and married a woman named Rachel Kelly. She bore him five more kids, including Jesse Root, and then she died herself. So Noah Grant found himself supporting seven kids alone. He essentially set his family adrift, took to drinking and spent all his family's inheritance and died penniless. Not a good look. And that is what Jesse comes from. He supported himself pretty much from age 11 or so. He worked odd jobs, often staying and living with his employers as a young boy and teenager. Uh, He ended up with the family of Ohio Supreme Court Justice George Todd. Mrs. Todd taught Jesse to read and paid for the only months of schooling he ever received. He then began apprenticing in tanneries and, like many who experienced poverty from a young age, voraciously advanced himself. His half-brother Peter owned a tannery in Maysville, Kentucky, and Jesse first apprenticed there. Kentucky was a slave state, and Jesse witnessed slave society for the first time, not necessarily in a King Cotton-producing region, but certainly near its historic highs as an industrial system. This might have been where Jesse first got a dose of abolitionism. Peter served as the head of an abolitionist society in Maysville, Jesse certainly absorbed that messaging, but he also left once his apprenticeship was done, saying he couldn't live in a slave state. So he crossed the river and made his own way in Ohio. Here he went to work for and live with Owen Brown, another tanner, who was the father of John Brown, the future militant abolitionist. From there, he opened up his own tannery, but apparently got sick and had to take some time to recuperate. He then got a job at the tannery in Point Pleasant, not too far from the Simpson farm. So that's how he meets Hannah. After a few years in Point Pleasant, Jesse moves the family to nearby Georgetown, Ohio, which is the seat of a newly established county. Uh, and also a much more promising place to start a business in 1823. He buys land near the courthouse, builds a two-story brick house, and he set up his own tannery right across the street. This he grew into a solid business. So Jesse is someone who likes to talk a lot and do so in a way that makes himself look smart. Maybe you know somebody like that. He's always down for a political debate. He writes frequent political newspaper articles over the course of his life. He gets elected for a term as mayor of Georgetown. He starts all these side ventures, uh, like farming land, running a livery service, transporting people around the nearby region. Uh, At one point, he wins a contract to build the local courthouse. This guy has a ton of energy, and he does not stop going. He's also a shrewd businessman. He's actually shrewd to the point that he was, in Ulysses' mind, unscrupulous. Ulysses saw him cut corners, uh, negotiate deals in such a way that squeezed value for himself at the other's expense, uh, things like this. Now, when we compare the personalities of Ulysses' parents, it's easy to say who he takes after. Grant carries traits he learns from his mother through his life. Obviously, of course, he picks things up from his father too, like a love of literature, a propensity for hard work, industriousness, things like these. But his defining features mostly come from Hannah. He keeps quiet unless he has something to say. He only sees the good in others. He never seeks his own advancement. He never goes for political wheeling and dealing. These traits will serve him well in some situations, but in others, they will totally mess him up. Let's talk about 19th century Ohio. So, in 1801, what is known as Ohio Country has roughly 45,000 white Americans living in it. The land was also inhabited by a significant population of indigenous Americans. No idea how many. It's very hard to know because not only were there the tribes that historically had lived in the region, like the Shawnee throughout most of the Ohio River Valley, the Erie in the northeast along Lake Erie, and the Kickapoo in a small northwest corner of the state uh, in its current dimensions. But there are also a number of other tribes whose lands had been stolen by white settlers and who had been pushed west. By 1800, there are over a dozen tribes at least living in Ohio. The Shawnee, led by our guide Tecumseh, fight a war over territory and shady treaty dealings against the U.S., and then side with the British during the War of 1812. Much of this goes down in western Ohio and Indiana Territory. Tecumseh dies in battle and the alliance he had formed dissolves and comparative peace occurs for a while, with indigenous tribes living as peacefully as one could in that context uh, near whites. That all changes in 1830 when President Andrew Jackson signed and enforced the Indian Removal Act. This forcibly evicted all native communities out of Southern states. Then many politicians in the North freak out because the South has been voided of indigenous people, but there are still big communities in the North. Many people figure, well, better clear the Northern states too. And so the US did in the following years in a more piecemeal basis. So 10 years before Grant is born, An indigenous society is straight up taking arms and going to war with the United States very near where he lives. In the early years of his life, there is a dynamic uprooted population of indigenous Americans living in the area. And by early 1840s or so, when Grant is in his mid and late 30s, they're gone. There is another community of people living in Ohio during this period. Freed or escaped slaves represented a growing population in the state during the antebellum years. Especially in Southern Ohio, many operated stations or safe house stopovers on the Underground Railroad. The Northwest Territory and the states that were formed out of this land, uh, Ohio, Indiana, and then Illinois, represented the most Southern tracts of free soil in the U.S. during this time. The further west you went, the lower the population density, so many African-Americans made their way through Ohio on their way to freedom. During all this time, the white population boomed. The city of Cincinnati grew to over 160,000 people by 1860, at which time it was the seventh largest city in the country. The state had overall 2.3 million members by 1860 again, And this was helped significantly by an influx of immigrants from across northern Europe. White immigrants were mostly from Britain, Ireland, and Germany. Census data has about 143,000 migrants coming in between 1821 and 1830. Over the next decade, that figure rises to about 600,000. Then it jumps to 1.7 million. This is over each subsequent uh, decade and census. Uh, Many of these people settled in the Midwest in Ohio, especially Germans, uh, but also many Americans migrated west during this time. Cleared western land was really cheap at this time. It was sold at auction for as low as 40 cents an acre. Ohio goes from frontier to midwestern state, or if you like, it goes from land occupied by indigenous Americans to land stolen from them by settlers in just a few decades. All right, let's talk politics. Ohio first voted Democratic-Republican in 1804 when it sent three electoral votes to Thomas Jefferson. It continued to vote Democratic-Republican until 1828 when it went for Andrew Jackson who headed the Democrat Party, which was essentially the main part of the reconstituted version of the Democratic Republican Party that splintered in the 1824 election. So the antebellum Democrats have an agrarian state-facing agenda. They are pro-expansion, pro-removal of indigenous people and pro-state's rights. Most especially those in the South are pro-slavery. But then comes Andrew Jackson. Jackson supports voting rights for all white male adults. He gains a huge amount of support from poor white farmers and the white working class. He also claims a huge amount of power for the office of the president. This throws a fissure into the Democratic Party, which used to count on the support of both rural voters and states' rights supporters. States rights people did not like a strong central government and they did not like all the power that Andrew Jackson was taking for himself. So the political lines begin to shift. A new faction of voters begin to favor the following policies. More power given to Congress and the central government to balance all the power that Andrew Jackson has taken for himself. The establishment of a national bank Uh, investment in infrastructure and modernization. So that is how the Whig Party forms. The first leader of the Whig Party is former Ohio Senator William Henry Harrison. Other prominent Whigs that you might know include people like Senator Henry Clay, Presidents John Tyler and Zachary Taylor, and our guy Abraham Lincoln. So Ohio is this really interesting dynamic place that is still largely rural, but has these big cities springing up. The white male voters support things like the expulsion of indigenous Americans, but they also want to connect their communities to Eastern railroad networks and bring about some kind of economic stability with a central bank. But the state is also very divided. Northern Ohioans in the Great Lakes region tend to be pretty similar to New England Yankees. These guys swing Whig. They support public education, infrastructure and modernization, personal morality and temperance. Uh, especially in what is known as the Western Reserve or region in Northeast Ohio, confusingly, the population earned a reputation as being among the most adamantly anti-slavery in the country. Southern Ohioans are much more likely to be Democrats and remain Democrats throughout this antebellum period. They supported states' rights, universal white male suffrage, and very often the continued existence of the institution of slavery. All of these swirling political forces and shifts were on display in Georgetown, Ohio, while Ulysses was growing up. Here's how he describes his town in his memoirs. Quote, Georgetown has a remarkable record for a western village. It is and has been from its earliest existence a democratic town. There is probably no time during the rebellion when, if the opportunity could have been afforded, it would not have voted for Jefferson Davis for President of the United States over Mr. Lincoln or any other representative of his party. The line between the rebel and union element in georgetown was so marked that it led to divisions even in the churches there were churches in that part of ohio where treason was preached regularly and where to secure membership hostility to the government to the war and to the liberation of slaves was far more essential than a belief in the authenticity or credibility of the bible There were men in Georgetown who filled all the requirements for membership in these churches. Yet this far-off western village, with a population including old and young, male and female, of about 1,000, about enough for the organization of a single regiment if all had been men capable of bearing arms, furnished the Union Army four general officers and one colonel, West Point graduates and nine generals and field officers of volunteers that I can think of." End quote. So Ulysses' dad was originally a Jacksonian Democrat as a young man, but as his own abolitionism developed and solidified, he broke with the Democratic Party and became a Whig. He was vocal about these beliefs and frequently disagreed with his neighbors over politics. So he represents the political shifts of Ohio, but in the southern and more democratic region of Georgetown, he is in a political minority. Okay, let's turn to everyone's favorite subject, the economy. Well, the antebellum American economy, at least. So remember how I was talking about those broad strokes of the historical landscape that have been politicized? Well, let's then turn to the cotton trade, which is a big one of those. Uh, Recent work by historians like professors Sven Beckert and Edward Baptist have sought to locate the cotton trade and the resulting expansion of slavery as foundational to the United States with the new york times 1619 project journalist nicole hannah jones goes so far as to say that the revolutionary war was fought to preserve the practice of slavery now that claim has met with a lot of backlash and the new york times has since issued a correction on that point but conservative economic historians have also seized on these points including the work of beckert and baptist And have sought to dispute it. Uh, So, some economic historians like Peter Wood, Philip Magnus, and Robert Cherry from the National Association of Scholars uh, in particular dispute these takes. Now, here's something weird the first time a single bale of cotton was shipped from the US to Europe was in 1785. Thirty years later, in 1815, it is the most valuable American export. By 1840, it is more valuable than all other American exports combined. Southern states are producing upwards of 500 million pounds of cotton, making up 55% of the American export market uh, in 1840. By 1860, the U.S. produces a collective 2 billion pounds of cotton, which accounts for 60% of all American exports. Still, for much of the early 1800s, the U.S. has an export deficit, although it reaches equilibrium for a few brief moments uh, here and there. This was largely thanks to the fact that most of the U.S. had difficulty connecting to ports. In 1800, you could take a trip from St. Louis to New Orleans in a boat uh, powered by a pole or a paddle loaded with goods and stuff. But from there, you would scuttle your boat, sell the lumber, and travel back over land. Uh, It makes a lot more sense uh, for a lot of people than taking a boat back up the river. In 1816, you could move one ton of goods across the Atlantic Ocean for the price of nine U.S. dollars. That same cost could get one ton of goods across 30 miles of land. So major generalizations are coming here. Over the next few years, the steamboat, the canal, the road, and the railroad fundamentally changed American life. From an economic point of view, it connected rural farmers with urban markets, raw goods producers with industrial manufacturers, and pretty much everyone else with everyone else by dint of post-service and newspaper circulation. Much of this transportation revolution in the U.S. occurred in the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s during Grant's early life. As a young man, Grant loved to to travel throughout the surrounding Ohio and Kentucky countrysides. At one point, he went as far east as Wheeling, Virginia, um, but all of this was on horseback. His first long journey away from home to attend West Point in upstate New York exemplified the changes in transportation that had occurred in the U.S. He traveled up the Ohio River by steamboat to Pittsburgh, then switched to a canal boat uh, to get to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Then Grant took his first trip on a train. Here's how he remembers it in his memoirs. Quote, in traveling by road, that's railroad, from Harrisburg, I thought the perfection of rapid transit had been reached. We traveled at least 18 miles an hour, went at full speed, and made the whole distance averaging probably as much as 12 miles an hour. This seemed like an annihilating pace. I stopped five days in Philadelphia, saw about every street in the city, attended a theater, visited Girard College, which was then in course of construction, and got reprimanded from home afterwards for dallying by the way so long, end quote. And he goes on to new york and from there on to west point so again the u.s has an export deficit for much of the 1800s some conservative economic historians seize on this fact to make the point that cotton only ever represented a small chunk of the u.s total economy i've read some people who say it was only about five percent of the u.s economy They also say it's hard to estimate because, I don't know, figures, measures, etc. were imperfect back then. These these guys also concede that it might be a little bit more. Anyways, they use that to go after claims made by other historians who say that slavery is a fundamental force in the founding of the United States. Uh, In other words, many historians today study the trade of cotton to make the point of how foundational slavery was to the founding of the United States. So anyways, to these conservative economic historians, look, let's take a look at the 2021 US economy by sector as a percentage of GDP. This is according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is part of the US uh, Department of Commerce. So US manufacturing generated 4.6% of the total GDP in 2021. Professional business services made up 11.6%. Healthcare and social services were 6.6%. The data service uh, provider Statista slices things uh, slightly differently. According to them, the retail trade, wholesale trade, and information sectors each make up between 5% and 6% of overall GDP. So imagine if one single raw material brought in as much as all retail trade combined. We would be losing our minds. It's a huge deal. It's it's crazy to downplay it. In 1800, the U.S. was 100% a developing country. New York, the largest city, had a population of 60,000 people. I live in a Uh, town a village of 41 to 42,000 people right now if uh, Burlington, Vermont my hometown were transported back to the 1800s. It would be the second largest city in the United States Uh, At the time that was Philadelphia, which had roughly 41,000 people So cotton provides a massive cash injection into this small economy as the cash flows in ambitious white american males want to grab their slice of the pie white people flood into the cotton belt states of alabama mississippi arkansas during the 1820s 30s and 40s labor in these regions is made up mostly in some cases almost entirely of enslaved people now the legal slave trade ends in the u.s in 1808 Smuggling still occurs, yes, but the major source of enslaved people is the growth of existing enslaved populations during this time. This reality also puts pressure on cotton plantation owners and managers to squeeze more and more labor out of their workers. Cotton production becomes an industrialized process and slave managers begin to study means by which they can get enslaved people to work harder and harder. Truly, the cotton boom in this period brings about some of the darkest chapters of modern American slavery. Enslaved populations begin to concentrate throughout the cotton belt. By 1860, there are 4.5 million black Americans uh, who make up 45% of the total population of southern states. In many regions, they make up large majorities of the population. I say all this to make the point that the institution of slavery is inextricably intertwined with what might be considered the United States' first big economic boom. That makes it inextricably intertwined with politics. It's easy to become a disgusting racist if racist practices make you disgustingly rich, which they did to many people. Now, the southern border of Ohio is formed by the Ohio River, which forms the boundary with Kentucky, which is a slave state, as I've said. Grant probably would not have witnessed a large cotton-growing slave plantation until he fought in the Civil War, but he certainly witnessed slave labor growing up. As we know, he then married into a Missouri slave-holding family. For several years in his life, he managed slaves, uh, but White Haven, the plantation where he lived, probably almost definitely did not produce any cotton the crop can't grow that far north instead this uh, plantation probably produced a range of crops this was typical for both slave and free regions in the northwest this becomes the american breadbasket advances in agricultural technology allow farmers to farm more efficiently and expand from operations that would just feed their own families to those that could bring crops to market. Then in the Northeast, we see an explosion of industrial capacity. Much of this is textile mills that process raw cotton. The bulk of the financial industry is also located in the Northeast. And you better believe that a great deal of northern investments, securities, insurance policies and other financial products and services touched slavery in some way. Again, can you tell that I'm generalizing and simplifying complex events here? So there is also this idea that uh, for in the Civil War, the North was full of abolitionists. Everyone in northern states recognized the evils of slavery, so this belief goes, and they acted quickly after the Revolutionary War to abolish this institution. But that is not the case. Every northern state had abolished slavery by the early 1800s, yes, but enslaved people remained in the north until the 13th Amendment was ratified in 1865. These state laws that abolished slavery all looked different. Some didn't free slaves but merely made enslaved people indentured servants. Some had long timelines. Some were not really enforced, etc. Why is this the case? Why does slavery get abolished in the North in the first place? I don't really know. I can't really explain such a complex trend here, but there is one big reason. You can't grow cotton north of the Mason Dixon line to use financial terms. Slavery just didn't have the value proposition in the North that it did in the South, but it's not like northerners hands were clean of this evil. Whether you were an Ohio tanner, a New York insurance agent, a mobile exporter, or a Pennsylvania farmer, you probably didn't rely on slave labor to do your job, but your job probably played a small role in an economy that relied heavily on the institution of slavery. Many people in the northern states and or the Whig party do oppose slavery on moral grounds. Many others are faced by political opposition that has organized along economic lines, uh, i.e. the enslaving cotton production industry. So many people in the North are politically thrown together, uh, in a sense, because the enemy of their enemy is their friend. Whereas in the South, many of the movers and shakers all are participating in this same boom industry. Okay, why am I talking so much about the institution of slavery and the production of cotton in a podcast about Ulysses S. Grant? Well, here's why. Grant is indoctrinated in abolitionism from a young age, but he doesn't really leave us with any record of his own abolitionism until partway through the Civil War. A lot of people want Grant to be an abolitionist and a civil rights hero. He does become that person. But before he does so, he is a product of the economic and political reality of antebellum America. And in that reality, he manages enslaved people. He owns enslaved people. And he doesn't really have much to say about it. In fact, this is kind of typical for Americans at this time. And if we can zoom forward to the Civil War, grant expert Professor Joan Waugh has this to say.
1: Here's the conundrum I think many people fail or, or just don't want to think about. And that is that for that generation of Northerners, I have to tell you the the main point of the war was to save the Union. And, and that explains a lot about Reconstruction and after. It explains that, that a lot of white Northerners A lot of northern states passed laws against Black suffrage, passed passed very prejudiced and racist laws, legislations, statements that that would not pass muster today to say the least, but indicated that what they wanted was some kind of reconciliation, and it didn't matter to them in the end uh, what the status of the Black person was that's what grant had to work against and frankly it's it's a it's just a, something that we have a hard time accepting and understanding but without that understanding and acceptance we can't really be historians and go back and look and look at the people of the time during the war after the war during reconstruction and then and then throughout much of the 20th century we can't understand what the rationale for people for historical actors unless we just just kind of try and and understand how people how people thought what their frame of reference was what they cared about
0: Have been listening to ulysses under fire my name is henry kronk thanks so much for listening if you like this episode and want to hear more smash that subscribe button baby even better leave me a rating and a review if you want to get in touch you can write me directly uh, via email at UlyssesGrantPod@gmail.com. at gmail.com At the end of this episode, you heard a section of an interview I conducted with grant expert and historian Professor Joan Waugh. Other sources for this episode can be found in the show description. That's all for now. Take care, be safe, and watch for my next episode coming soon. (laughs)